Esther chapter 7, here's what the Word of God has to say. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asherah said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose from his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, the, they, they covered Haman's face. Then Horbona, one of the eunuchs who in attendance to, on, the, uh, on, on, on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Asherah gave the queen Esther gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Haman. Now skip down to chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Asherias and to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Now skip to verse 20 of the same chapter. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Asherias, both near and far, 
obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them, day, make them days of fasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So as we come to the conclusion of Esther and we consider how God provided for Esther and her cousin Mordecai and all of the Jews in the land, uh, there are two things that I, I think this passage and this book as a whole testify to. The first and the most obvious is how God historically worked through people and events of the day to bring about his will and to provide for his people. Now, as we consider the book of Esther, it is important that we do not say less than this. So we certainly need to make much of the fact that God used all sorts of things, pagan kings and even wicked men like Haman to bring about his will. We, we talked early on as, we were, as, we, as I was preaching through Esther, how God even used the very ugly and, and, and difficult understanding of what happened to Esther to, to provide for his people. And we do not want to say less than that, that God provided, protected, and delivered his people through the events of the day, through the people of the day, in the days of Esther and Mordecai. However, I think we can learn more from this testimony and that is beyond how it testifies to a historical event, I think it also points to what God is still going to do. No matter how good our present day may be, we live in a world that is marred by the reality and presence of evil. The more we're aware of and, and or confronted by the reality of evil, the more we desire a day when evil is defeated and the kingdom of God is fully and completely established. And I believe the book of Esther is pointing toward this reality. Now, the last four chapters recount the total destruction of Haman and the establishment of Mordecai in his place. So here's what happens if you, if you missed it. So we picked it up in the second banquet. If you may remember, Esther approached the king uninvited and by God's grace, he received her. And he said, what can I do for you? And she said, I'd like to throw you a party just for you and Haman. That pleased the king. She threw him a party. And the king said, what can I do for you, Esther, up to half my kingdom? And she said, the only thing I ask for you is let me throw you another party. And it pleased the king and it pleased Haman as well. He was very proud that only he and the king were invited. We picked it up in chapter seven where she is throwing this second party. And at that second party, the king says again, Queen Esther, what do you ask for? What can I do for you up to half my kingdom? And she, can you imagine the, the, what, what the, 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 uh, the temperature change in the room? Haman's sitting over there thinking life is good, reclining, drinking the king's wine, invited to a private party with just the king and the queen. And Esther goes, here's the one thing I want. Would you save my life from a terrible murderous person? And the king goes, who in the world would dare murder the queen? And she goes, it's this guy sitting right here on the couch with us. The king's so mad, the Bible says he gets up and he walks out in the garden. And probably what happened was, now, they were reclining. They weren't sitting at tables. They were likely reclining. For lack of a better word, they're, they're laying on couches. 
And Haman probably throws himself on Esther, not in a way to attack her, but to beg her. He's probably grabbed hold of her arm, maybe grabbed hold of her shoulder and is begging her, please, please. And that's when the king walks in. It just goes from bad to worse. Now the king's even more bad. He says, you're going to assault my queen in my house? The Bible says at that very moment, they, they throw a, a, a hood over Haman and... To make matters even worse, you may remember just a previous chapter or so, the, the king couldn't sleep one night. He was reading through the, through the chronicles of the, the, the history of, of his kingdom, and he realized that they had never honored Mordecai for saving his life and thwarting a plot against his life. And so they had just paraded Mordecai through the city. Haman had to do it, by the way, uh, and honoring him with the king's robes. And so now as the king is just enraged by what Haman had attempted to do to the queen, his eunuch says, oh, by the way, <laughs> Haman's just built these huge gallows to hang the guy that saved your life. And the king says, go hang him on those gallows. Now what follows is a pretty dramatic change of events. So Haman is dead and Queen Esther, and, 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 and the king gives Esther his household. Esther gives it to Mordecai. And Mordecai is also given the signet ring. Now, if you'll remember, the signet ring is a way to, to enact laws with the, with the power of the king. And who had it before Mordecai was Haman. And Haman had used that signet ring to send out a decree into all the land that on the 12th month, and a particular day on the 12th month, that all the Jews were to be killed and that their property and their, their wealth was to be seized. Now Haman is dead. Mordecai has the signet ring. They're living in Haman's house and and, uh, and, and Esther uh, comes again to the king and she says, I have another request. And she says, this edict has gone out and we are about to be annihilated still, my people. And so the king allows them, encourages them to send out another decree. And the other decree essentially says the Jews can defend themselves. And there's a change in political realities where now Mordecai, the Jew, is number two to the king. And there's a couple of places in Scripture where it talks about that all the enemies were put down. It even talks about that some of those who probably either were, either were Jews and had hidden that fact or were not Jews but wanted to be aligned with the Jews now were claiming to be Jews. And so overnight, what was intended to be a moment where the Jews were annihilated now they are the victors. And even to the point of the people in the, um, in, the, in the kingdom identifying themselves with being Jewish. And the last chapter that we read, chapter nine, is the testimony of Mordecai establishing a holiday, a festival that was to be celebrated every year to remind them, to remember how God had delivered his people. Now, all of this is not a one-to-one -one representation of what the Lord's going to do. But I do think it points us to a beautiful truth that victory is the Lord. Vic the evil has already been defeated. And even though presently we may be living in a moment that feels like evil is winning and disaster after disaster is coming, the truth of the matter is God is still on his throne. He never left. And he will bring about his perfect will and his perfect timing. And he will defeat his enemies and he will deliver his people. And I think that's a good word for us today. And so with that said, I want us to just these two very simple points to make from these concluding chapters. Number one, God's enemies will be defeated. And secondly, God will transform beauty from our ashes. 
hope from our grief. But let's begin with enemies defeated. And there, I really just divide this in two ways, present and future adversaries. Enemies will be defeated. But let's begin with our present adversaries. And here we'll look primarily at Haman. So things go pretty bad for Haman very quickly. So literally he goes from the very top of his career to dying all in the same day. At the start of chapter seven, Haman is feeling proud and confident in his power and prestige. He's rich. He's second only to the king. He's very proud that Esther has now invited only the king and himself to two banquets. And he likely starts um, arriving at the second banquet thinking that nothing and no one can touch him. I mean, he is the man. By chapter seven, verse 10, he is executed and, and um, on, the, on the gallows he personally built to kill Mordecai on. He's found guilty of attempting to murder the king, the, I mean, to murder the queen and her people. He's found guilty of assaulting the queen in the palace and dishonoring the king. And he's found guilty uh, of planning to kill the very man who saved the life of the king and was recently honored. From chapter three, when we first are introduced to Haman to this moment, Haman has been the clear enemy of the Jews. He's made it his personal goal to annihilate the Jews. In fact, that word is used over and over again, particularly in relation to the decree that he sends out. He doesn't want to hurt the Jews. He doesn't want to diminish the Jews. He doesn't want to remove them from political power. He wants to, ex uh, to exact genocide upon the, upon the Jews. He wants to annihilate them. If you had asked Mordecai, if you'd asked Esther, for that matter, if you'd asked any Jew on the street who was, uh, who, was, who was the greatest threat to their life and their well-being, they would have said right up to the, to, to the beginning of chapter 7, his name is Haman. Esther clearly identifies her enemy in verse 6. Look at what she says. The king asked her, who would do such a thing? And here's how she phrased it. She says, a foe and enemy. This wicked Haman. Dear friends, in every generation and in every moment of history, there have been and will continue to be enemies of God and therefore enemies of God's people. Nothing about the evil of our day is new. Nothing about the wickedness of our day is somehow a, a fresh idea. In every generation since the fall of man, there have been enemies of God and therefore enemies of God's people. The book of Esther is not a testimony of how Esther and Mordecai or the Jews defeated their enemy. That This is a testimony of how God defeated his enemies. This is not a testimony to the wisdom and the might of Esther or Mordecai. This is a testimony to the might and power and sovereignty, uh, sovereignty of the living God. Chapter 7 recounts how God defeated the present enemy of the Jews. And this points to, I think, a greater truth that no enemy of the living God will be able to stand. Somebody say amen. Now, in the moment, in the present moment, enemies always seem like they're undefeatable. They always seem like they have all of the advantages. And it's the same advantages in every generation. Wealth and political power. Influence. Haman had it all. 
He was the wealthiest guy around. He had political influence and power. He had the power of the government behind him. He had the power of law behind him. He was creating a world that was unfair and disastrous and dangerous for the Jews. But dear friends, even still, the point of this testimony is, is that there is no enemy of God that will be able to stand. God is presently defeating his enemies and will bring an end to all those who oppose his will and oppose his people. The names change. The names change from generation to generation, but the reality does not. No one who opposes the living God will be successful. God will deal with and defeat his present enemies. But there's something else here in this passage that I think is important for us to see, and that is that God will defeat his future enemies. Now, stay with me on this one. After Haman is hung on his own gallows, there still remains the coming disaster of the law that he had created that established a day in the 12th month where all the Jews in the land were to be killed and their possessions were to be plundered. So Esther again approaches the king uninvited and again she's received by the king and she pleads for her people and, and for the decree of Haman to be revoked. The king cannot revoke his own law, but he gives permission to write a new law and to send it out. And so Haman, excuse me, so Mordecai does just that. They, they write a new law and they send it out with their fastest couriers to every part of the kingdom. In verse 8 of chapter 8, it says, But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. At this moment, popular opinion changed. Many people began to declare themselves Jews. If you look in chapter 8, verse 17, it says, And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy amongst the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, I don't know. This may have included some who were ethnically Jews and who had been hiding it like Esther had been hiding her ethnicity for a while. And now that it's popular and acceptable to be Jew, uh, to be a Jew, maybe now they're going, oh yeah, 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 I've been Jewish, I've been Jewish all along. It's also likely that these are some folks who are not Jewish, but they, but they see that now it's politically advantageous to be Jewish, and so they're claiming to be. When the new decree went out, the Jews were able to overcome those who had previously planned to oppose them and kill them. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Asherias to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the people. But I want to point you to something interesting. In chapter 9, verses 7, 8, and 9, there are 10 names that are specifically listed that were killed. And these names are important. I'm going to do my best to pronounce them. Parsha and Datha, Dolphon, Asphatha, Poratha, 
Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arishai, Aridai, and Vaizatha. You know any of those guys? These are the ten sons of Haman. If you'll remember with me when Haman was at his house and he had a house party and he gathered his wife and his friends together, he was bragging about how rich and powerful he was. And he recounted to them a couple of things. He told them how wealthy he was. He wanted them to see how much money he had in his bank account. He wanted them to know how many awards and honors and promotions he had gotten in the political world. And he also talked about how many sons he had. It was a point of pride for him. His name, his purpose, his will was going to continue. Enlisting the ten sons of Haman, Scripture reminds us that they are the sons of Haman, who was the son of Hamadatha, who Scripture lists or identifies as the enemy of the Jews, testifying to the fact that the, that the future of Hamadatha and Haman's wickedness towards God's people will be no more. Here's what's happening. God was bringing an end not only to Haman, but to the entire household and lineage of Haman. God was defeating all of the past, present, and future enemies from this line. Listen, here, here's, the, here's the point I want you to catch. When God does something, he never does it halfway. When God begins something, he never just starts but doesn't finish. God always completes. God always finishes. God always does his work completely. God finishes what he starts and completes what he begins. When the Lord returns and the fullness of the kingdom come, it will not be a partial victory. When the Lord comes, God will have victory over all of his enemies, past, present, and future. And once God establishes his kingdom perfectly and forever, the, the enemies of God will be defeated and they will be no more. There is no more household of Haman today. Because in this moment of history, God defeated Haman. And I believe, dear friends, that points to a truth that when God defeats his enemies, they won't be kind of pushed back. They won't be subdued. When the coming day of the Lord comes, they will be completely defeated, present and future, past included. All the enemies of God will fall. Now, there's something else I want you to see in this passage. And, and I'm, I'm using a phrase here called beauty from ashes, which, which comes from the, the prophet Isaiah. But, but all in this passage, so from the beginning of chapter 8 through the end of chapter uh, 10, there, there's, this, there's this testimony that as the edict goes out and as the Jews find victory over their enemies, that they, their, their heart, their attitude, their outlook goes from despair to rejoicing, from grieving to, to gladness. And there's this change of, of temperature. There's this change of attitude. There's this change of heart that happens in the land. They are rejoicing in God's deliverance. Now I said I, I get this phrase from Isaiah. 
The prophet Isaiah proclaims a very hopeful word to a people acquainted with grief and suffering in chapter 61 of Isaiah. And he writes these, these words. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bring up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to open, uh, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Listen to these words. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. In chapter 9, verses 20, 21, and 22, we read it this morning. It records that Mordecai established the 14th and the 15th day of the month of Adar as a holiday to celebrate what God had done. It's interesting. They, they name this feast Purim which is a play on words because you may remember the reason why Haman decided to kill the Jews in the 12th month is that when he decided he was going to kill them, he cast lots, throwing dice, if you will. And he was trying to, to, uh, to, to divine through the, through the wicked spirits of the world. He was trying to divine when would be the most advantageous moment in the cal on the calendar to annihilate God's people. So permit to cast lots. Haman had cast lots to attempt and determine what was the best month in order to, for the destruction of Jews. But instead of that month being the month where they were destroyed, that was the month where God delivered his people and the, Jews, the, the enemies of the Jews were destroyed. God was providing all along for the deliverance of the Jews. And so they call it Purim, which is a play on words. It reminded them that lots were cast for their destruction, but God's sovereignty overruled, overruled it all. The festival was intended to be an annual celebration to rejoice what God had done, to proclaim what God is doing and able to do, and to glory in who God is. And friends, I think it is right and good to celebrate and remember what the Lord has done. Now, you, you may be thinking, well, pastor, that's great. I'm all about festivals and holidays. And we can even put one on the calendar if you want to. But I don't know of a time in my life when there was governmental action that was about to kill me and everybody I knew. And then I was relieved from that and, and, uh, and all as well. But I think you've missed something, friends. If you're in the room today and you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, there was a moment in your life when the fullness of God's wrath was coming upon you, when the weight of your sin was on your head. And if you had stepped from this life into the next, you would have done so to the condemnation of hell. And you came to the knowledge of salvation. Believing in faith on Jesus, your sins were washed away by his blood. And in an instant, you went from condemned to redeemed. Somebody say amen. You went from mourning to gladness, 
from grief to rejoicing. You went from one who was under the weight of God's wrath to one who was going, who was welcomed into the presence of God, to whom God has said, Jesus, I'll go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Dear friends, that's a good word. That is a good word. And it is good and it is right to celebrate what God has done in our lives. It is good and right to celebrate and remember what God has done. He has defeated the enslavement of sin into our lives, those of us who know Jesus. He has brought about the gospel that testifies to our hope, even in the midst of a broken world. And he has transformed our sorrow into joy. Now, I want to point out to you some dramatic contrast that I see in the book of Esther. You may remember in chapter 3, when the first edict went out, that in chapter 3, verse 15, there's this weird uh, testimony of a contrast, even in the moment where Haman and the king are drinking. They're having an evening party together. But chapter uh, 3, verse 15 says, but all of the city of Susa was in confusion. That is a, one of those huge biblical understatements. Can you imagine? You just saw the, the edict put out on all the newspapers, on all the national news, that on, on, on the 12th month, on a particular day, that you and everybody you know and all your stuff that, that, that you possess, you're going to be killed, your whole people are going to be killed, and all your things are going to be, uh, are going to be looted. You would be troubled indeed. But where chapter 3, verse 15 talks about but the, the city of Susa was, was thrown into confusion, look with me at chapter 8, verse 15. It says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And listen to this. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Grief to rejoicing. You may remember in chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, that when Mordecai hears of the edict that had been sent out, that he does a couple of things, that he tears his clothes, he, he puts on sackcloth, and he, and he throws ashes on his head. Those were outward symbols of grief and mourning. And you may remember that he was, he, because he was in mourning and, and was in sackcloth and ashes, he could not come in the, in the king's gate. And so, but, but Esther hears about it from the palace. She hears that her cousin Mordecai is grieving. And so she thinks there must be some problem that she can take care of with wealth. You may remember she sends to him and she says, listen, I can take care of you. I'll clothe you well. I'm the queen. And that's when he informs her of the edict that had gone out that was going to that called for the destruction, the annihilation of the Jews. In Esther chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. But look in chapter 9, verse 18. It says, But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that day a, a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and fasting, a feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Their grief had been transformed into gladness. Now, friends, we live in the sorrow and grief of a world broken and stained by sin. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know where you are, but, but as, the longer we move in pandemic world, the heavier my heart gets. Somebody asked me this week, somebody that I, I talk to and pray with regularly, and they're out of town, so it's a precious prayer partner, disconnected from the church, and so we just we call and, and pray for one another. And he asked me, he said, how are you doing? And I, I said to him, I said, I'm exhausted. But it's an, it's, an, it's an exhaustion I've not known. It's not an exhaustion that a vacation or some time off will heal or help. It's an exhaustion that's coming from the fact that the tank of supply for grief and, um, and, and, and for sympathy and an emotional connection is just wore out, poured out. In an average year, a pastor does a lot of funerals, spends time with families that are grieving. That's normal and, and part, of my, part of my labor. But, but in these last two years, it's just constant. There's not a single one of you in this room that's not been affected, not only with just the sickness of, uh, of COVID, but with death of COVID. And it's creating a fatigue. Add to that the imagery of yesterday and just thinking about the weight of yesterday and what we were remembering. There is a heaviness to that. It is a reminder, an undeniable, inescapable reminder that we live in the sorrow and grief of a world broken and stained by sin. And friends, nothing the world has can fix that. But there is coming a day when our present grief will turn into gladness and our present confusion and dismay will be turned into rejoicing. God will give victory from our humility and will give hope from our despair. That day will be when the fullness of God's kingdom is established and the greatness of his hope will be known. And where we must be today is let us long for that day. Let us pray for that day. Let us persevere until that day and let us hope in that day. For Esther and Mordecai and the Jews of their day, they knew it. They knew it as God delivered them from the wickedness of Haman. And dear friends, I'm here to tell you, we will know it too. When Jesus returns and makes all things right. In some ways, 20 years seems like a long time. As our nation remembered the 20th anniversary of 9-11, terrorist attacks this week, I, I had some conversations with my kids and it was just a reminder. They don't remember it because they weren't born. In fact, there are a lot of you here today. Don't remember it. You weren't born or you were so little, so young, you weren't even aware of what was happening. To you, September 11th, 2001 are events of history you only read about and hear about. But, but some of those, some of us, who were alive on September 11th, for those who are alive on September 11th, that's one of those moments in your life where you can, you can recount where you were and what you were doing. For some of you, blow by blow, moment by moment, what was happening. 
The events of that day forever changed the world and the lives of those who experienced it. It may have been 20 years ago, but for those who experienced it, you can remember it like it was yesterday. It was a day of great despair, brokenness, and grief. Collectively, as a nation, we grieved for the 2,977 people who lost their lives. 246 in the airplanes, 2,606 in the World Trade Center and surrounding areas, 125 at the Pentagon. The grief of death has a way of shaking us to our core. And when death comes tragically and in the context of evil, it is all the more soul shaking. Almost exactly two years before September 11th, 2001, Dana and I in our church, Fort Worth, Texas, experienced an equally life-changing event when a deranged man came into our church on a Wednesday night and killed seven of our worshipers. In the context of those horrible days, the hope of the gospel sustained us. It gave us strength. It allowed us to speak of hope even as our hearts were broken with grief. One of the members of our church was a professor at Southwestern and he, Seminary, and he, and he wrote a book chronicling the events of that day, a book by the title of Night of, Night of Tragedy, Dawn of Hope. And I want to read to you the words that he begins the chapter he begins the chapter about the funerals. Here's what he wrote. So prior to Saturday, September 18, 1999, most of those affected by the Wedgwood shootings had never attended the funeral of a martyr, one killed as he or she worshiped or prepared to worship in God's house. Before the weekend was over, there would be seven such funerals, four on Saturday afternoon. Here's the paragraph I want you to key in on. While Christians and non-Christians go through the same valley of the shadow of death, there is a marked difference in their funerals. Christians live and die with the blessed hope of an eternity with God in heaven. No matter how dark the night, the believer can express with the psalmist weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Friends, in the days of Esther and Mordecai, the grief and despair of the Jews was turned to gladness and rejoicing when God demonstrated His mighty power to vanquish His enemies and to deliver His people. And the good word I have for you, friends, is that our present hope is still in that Jesus will return and God will once and for all vanquish his enemies and deliver his people forever. The truth is victory is the Lord. It may be said and it may be true that weeping may endure for a night. All the joy is coming when Christ returns.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.